It is hard to argue against the idea that the world is built upon connection. From the tiniest atoms to nature and even technology, everything in our world depends on its relationship to others. Studies into human relationships tell the incredible story of the power of connection. Positive, healthy human relationships are linked to better mental and physical health outcomes. In today's busy world, we are asked to connect to others on a regular basis. And yet, there is often little understanding of the vast impacts our interactions have. Welcome to Season 2 of NFCC's Guide Through the Seasons of Mental Wellness, where we dive into some of the most common, as well as a few overlooked, relationships we experience in a lifetime. I am your host, Tracy Lehman, and I am honored to be a part of your day. Let's get into today's episode. There are few relationships in our lives that require a greater level of intimacy and vulnerability than the doctor-patient relationship. As a patient, you are giving another person permission to assess your entire body inside and out, often before developing a personal connection to them. For some, disclosing our habits and care practices can be a scary endeavor that leads to avoiding doctor's visits altogether. Finding a right fit for you or a family member involves more than just an internet search. You have to consider many relationship dynamics, including finding someone who is trustworthy and makes you feel comfortable. Today, we're going to talk about how to make the process of finding a great dynamic between you and your physician that will create a lasting and beneficial connection. Here to help us explore this topic is one of my absolute favorite physicians of all time, Dr. Lisa White-Lapiz. Dr. White-Lapiz received her degree at the University of Texas in 2003. She then went on to earn her DO in 2008 at the University of North Texas Health Science Center and completed her residency in pediatrics at the Children's Medical Center, UT Southwestern, after which she worked in private practice from 2011 to 2013 at Texas Children's Pediatrics. After becoming close to a fellow pediatrician, who she soon learned grew up just down the street from her, Dr. White-Lapiz and her former childhood neighbor, Dr. Dalavi Ali, opened their own practice in their hometown of Katy, Texas. Sprout Pediatrics has been a thriving and sought-after practice in the Katy area for several years. Welcome, Dr. White-Lapiz. I'm so excited to talk to you outside of the office. (laughs) Yeah. Let me share a little background since you're my family's beloved pediatrician, Mm -hmm. which was so amazing because that's such a stressful time when you first enter motherhood. And I was just blown away by your office, by the nurses there. I feel like I have a connection to all your staff and Mm -hmm. have been like you just hire people or I don't even know what your hiring practices are, but just everyone (laughs) there is so friendly, is so relatable and you they are who they are, like they have different personalities, but they all make time to like connect with you. And then you always make time, which is something I've always hated about going to doctors is they're always so overbooked. They like rushed, they have five minutes to talk to you. You never are like that. You always, you and Dr. DeLavi make sure you have time to sit and talk and answer questions and deal with all our crazy anxiety. (laughs) So can you tell me a little bit about how you guys have created this environment that allows for everyone to really feel known and cared for? So when Dr. DeLove and I started our practice, one of our mottos really came from like the cheers kind of where everybody knows your name. And we wanted a small family. We were coming from a very large group. We had five physicians and 20 staff and thousands of patients. And we would hear complaints about, I left my job and the inner loop. And I've been on hold with your office the entire way out to, to the office. And now I'm here and I'm still on hold and no one's answered my call. And we get a lot of complaints about that. And so we really wanted it to be a much smaller, more personable environment. And it's difficult maybe for, to find exactly our style of practice. I'm sure they exist. It's just, you have to work to find them. And we, we don't have an office manager. It's just us. We're the ones who are hiring everybody. 
And so we want them to be part of our family, which is what, you know, we try to hire someone who we think melds well with us personality wise, which I think is reflected in what you notice about them. And then we try to keep the same people as much as we can, which then helps to develop relationships with you, with them, as well as with us. And it just makes it easier for everybody. If you kind of already know everyone and kind of know what's going on with them already, it just makes it easier and forever more with them. So what do you think is your personal approach to the doctor patient relationship? And how have you been able to maintain that with all the outside pressures from, and I really don't know what the pressures look like for doctors, but I assume from insurance companies. So the, the, the main thing that I always think I do a good job at is like figuring out the question that's really being asked. Like sometime a mom is worried about their baby's fever and are they really worried about that? Or did they Google leukemia? And that's what they're really worried about. And they just want to hear no leukemia without asking it because they're afraid to say it or they don't want to look crazy or, you know, anything like that. So I I feel like I'm good at seeing or hearing what the question really is and then answering it or making sure I'm answering it. You know, I'll ask like, do you have any other questions? Did I explain it to you? Do you understand? Like, are we on the same page? Do we, you know, we're in agreement going forward and whatever. And then again, back to owning my own practice, that takes away a lot of the pressures. Unfortunately, when you're employed with a hospital group, which is where it's probably at least half the practices, I think there was a shift years ago towards being employed because you don't have to deal with some of the HR type stuff. You just kind of get a paycheck. You're just an employee too. And then I think there's starting to be a shift back because the doctors are getting more and more pressure. Like you have to meet your numbers. You have to see this many patients and you don't have any control of your schedule. So you have to start at a certain time or you have a template that's booked for you that you don't get to control. But like I run my own template. So I can be like, I know that this mom has more questions and she needs more time. So I want to make sure I have the time to spend with her or just that we don't want to be crazy all day. So we just have more longer slots in general. And because we don't have the the man or whatever over us saying, you must see this many patients, then that doesn't matter. So we're able to just control it better. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really nice. But yeah, what you were saying is so interesting. I just, I have a friend that's a physician and we just talked about how part of the great, so the, I don't know if you're familiar with the great resignation, the, like Mm -hmm. all these people leaving their jobs, like millions of people have left their jobs. It's crazy. And it's mostly like teachers and like people in service industries, like hospitality, but doctors and nurses are part of that. A lot of hospitals because of that bottom line thing, right? They're for profit. And so the push is for making the money and yeah. So I feel like a lot of doctors and nurses are really unhappy in that area. And I don't get that sense when I come to your office that anyone (laughs) is unhappy there. Okay. So talking about this bedside manner thing, this ability to connect, are you familiar with Dr. Dan Siegel? I wasn't. And I read your blurb about him, but I hadn't, hadn't heard. He's like one of my, you know, in therapy, I'm I'm sure doctors have this too. He's like one of my therapist crushes, like somebody that I like love learning from. And he has a bunch of books, but he's a developmental psychiatrist researcher. And he's basically studied kids as his kids have grown up. So he's got, you know, early childhood, just all these amazing books. And in his story, so he has a book called Mindsight that I love. It's for adults. And it's about kind of how to be, live your life with like the values you want and be engaged in your life and yeah. make choices from a place that understands your emotions, but also has some like logic and information. So, but in it, and he talks about this in all of his interviews too. So he started out in medical school. He wanted to be a doctor. He didn't know what kind of doctor, but when he was doing, I don't know if it was rounds or residency. I don't even know what the difference is, obviously, because I wasn't in medical school, but whatever it was, he talks about like he would get connected to patients and then he would go check on them and they would have passed away. Um, and that the teaching doctors would be like, well, you've got to move on. Like, we don't have time to talk about that patient. Like you need to go see the next patient. You'll never make it if you get attached to these patients, you know? And then I think one of his favorite professors or somebody got cancer and he was treating him. And it was like the same, like there wasn't just, there wasn't a lot of focus on connection and attachment and, you know, relating to people that bedside manner. And I, I see it so often where it's missing. Yeah. Um, I've definitely had, you know, my father-in-law passed away from pancreatic cancer. And and so we were really involved in caring for him and, and in organizing things. And I remember calling one of the doctors and just was so rude. And I'm like, well, this is a scary place. He's going through chemo <laughs> and he's having these reactions. And you're angry with me for calling the number that he has for you. I don't yeah. because I, it was his cell phone or something. 
this doesn't feel like a a caring person who cares while like we're watching our family member die, you know? And yeah, so I'm curious about how your experience was in school, if that's still the experience, because Dan Siegel went to medical school in the 70s, but I've heard there's still not a lot of focus on bedside manner and relationship stuff. Yeah, I don't really have. I mean, it's been almost 20 years now since I started, which is a little scary to think about, but (laughs) I don't really have strong memories either way, positive or Mm -hmm. negative about it. My DO schools are a little bit different, you know, than MD schools in that they really try to focus on like the treating the whole patient. That's Mm -hmm. one of their kind of mottos. So we had specific training where we went to a museum and we're looking at paintings and trying to like look at the small details. So they they had a little bit of a shift towards kind of maybe a different approach. Mm -hmm. Is that why you chose DO? Because it had that more... Um, it was a really impressive school at the time. I kind of had two schools that I was deciding between. It's the one I got into. So it's just what happened. But I was, I think I fit well with that school. And at the time when I at least was in residency, which I started residency in 2008, the patient-centered rounds was uh, becoming a, a thing and a focus. I think we shifted towards that in my residency, which is mm-hmm. instead of the doctor rounding with the other doctors and the nurse, you round it in the room with the parents and the patient. So that they were part of like the discussion and the decision. So they knew more of the, from the whole team, whether it's the nutritionist and the nurse and, you know, anybody involved in it, that's definitely been a shift in the last maybe 10 or 15 years. So I think that I've kind of grown up in that environment. It's a little bit different, I mm-hmm. imagine, but still, I mean, there's still, I mean, it's just personality, which is what it comes down to is finding the right personality fit, I think for, for people. And there may not be a surplus of perfect personalities uh, to choose from, but definitely there's people who are very brusque and abrupt. And I feel like there are some of the older doctors that are just like, here's what I say, and you need to listen to it. And then mm-hmm. the people who are more like, okay, this is like a conversation and uh, a relationship more give and take than just like, I'm in charge mm-hmm. kind of approach. So <laughs> in the research, it says like that collaborative approach, that's what you're talking about is being more collaborative is yeah. what causes a lot of issues in treating patients is patients become afraid to like talk about what's going on or challenge what the doctor is seeing or yeah. if the doctor like overlooks a piece of information the patient gives them, you know, if it's not that collaborative, friendly environment, right. they don't give the, that information and it makes it really difficult, A, for them to follow through with treatment because sometimes it's like I don't have somebody to treat this wound on my back. I live right. by myself and I have no right. support, right? right? And so if the doctor isn't having a back and forth with them, they miss a lot of information right. is what it says yeah. in the research and that that's really damaging on a lot of levels with treatment. Yeah. I think that patients need to have the, whether it's trust or the relationship with their doctor, which is easier if they've established a medical home. And I think we're kind of going back and forth between a couple of your questions, but I think that people don't understand what they're missing by not having that because if you have someone who you have a relationship with and maybe you're fine for all these times, then when something does come up, you at least have more comfort in expressing yourself better versus yeah. if you're like at this urgent care, the specialist and just kind of hopping around, then you may be afraid to bring it up. You may feel rushed. You may not find the words, but absolutely. If you know, I'm telling someone you need to take a medicine three times a day and they're like, my kid won't take it, or I can't do the third dose. Like that's important feedback. Cause maybe I'm like, that's really the only option, but maybe I'm like, Oh, there's another option. That's like this. We should try that one instead, at least mm-hmm. first, you know, and it's better for me to know what the limitations are for you to know what the options are and, or be like, okay, I really need to do this. This is my only option. And um, yeah, I think that's true across all areas of medicine. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, a good point. You know, some people don't see the same doctor every time. Yeah. Um, I grew up with one pediatrician that was family related. I don't even know what the rules are about that, but somehow related to me, but he was wonderful. Anyways, I grew up with him. So I had a relationship. He knew me my whole life, but then it was when I became an adult and I had to find an adult, like, I didn't even know, did I want a family doctor, an internist? Right. I didn't know what the difference was, but that's when I was talking about earlier when I said the doctor hopping. I remember I would like go through my insurance and find somebody that, and finding reviews on doctors is also very, very difficult, I yeah. find. Yeah. So I try to find reviews. I try to go to them. And every time it was like 10 minutes, 15 minutes, not a lot of time with me, not yeah. a lot of relatability, yeah. you know? Yeah, I think it is hard, especially at some practices, you know, especially like the hospital owned ones where they have a very limited time and they may not have control of their schedule. They may be double booked. I think that 
especially if there's somebody knows they have a more complex thing, like really being upfront at the time of scheduling even can be helpful. Because if I know that someone's coming in for a concern that tends to take a long time, especially like a psychiatric type concern, I want to make sure I have a way longer slot booked for them than if they're coming in for a sore throat and a strep test. And then sometimes people are reluctant to explain that to, especially to the scheduler, especially if they don't know them very well, but just being like, why do you need to know why I'm coming in for? I just want to see the doctor, but it's so that we can make sure we have time to spend with you. Because mm-hmm. I, I mean, I can imagine that most doctors don't like feeling that they're not, that they're rushing or that they're being forced out. I mean, you know, they, they don't like that feeling either. So they would, I mean, they, if they have the ability to rearrange it to make more time, I think if they know what they're, what the appointment's for, they can kind of rearrange it sometimes, you know, yeah. depending on the, the clinic, but yeah. definitely helps to know more. Yeah. And I think having, again, having that staff that you're familiar with, like I never have been uncomfortable talking about what's going on with anybody. Right. right. Um, and I think also your nurses will help with scheduling sometimes if it's unclear, yeah. I feel like. And that goes with me being here for years, like they know what I want or they know that I, or I tell them, I'm literally like, can you call them back and ask them? Because I want to, this sounds like maybe it's going to take a little bit more time. I want to make sure we have enough time or do they even need to come in or whatever the situation is. But because they've worked with me for so long, they know my preferences too. And then they know the patients as well. And so they're able to manage that also. Yeah. Yeah. Which is it's cool. Again. Yeah. It helps yeah. to know everybody. Yeah. Um, it's fantastic. Yeah. I love it. And I don't, I don't think doctor hopping is bad at the beginning if you're trying to find somebody because, you know, there are some people that don't love my clinic and they come here for a few visits and they leave and that's fine. That's, mm-hmm. you know, if we're not a good fit, that's okay. But I think sometimes you have to try it out to know. But if you try it out and then go somewhere else and you just never find a home, then I think you're doing it a service to yourself on some level too. Yeah. And that was always an issue for me too. It always went through my head. Like now somebody has got to know my whole history. And if they don't know my whole history, they're not going to really know what the heck they're looking at when they look at just. And as you get older, there's more history to remember. I know. Right. Like I forgot it. Yeah. Yeah. I find myself taking notes. Actually, I think you encouraged me to take notes because I come in and you'd be like, what questions do you have? And I'd be like, I feel like I have a hundred questions, but I remember none right now. And so I write it down. Yeah. 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 So I started writing it down. So research tells us regular and preventative care is so valuable for long-term health outcomes. But so many people, like I mentioned at the beginning, avoid doctors until a problem arises or worse, they're in crisis, like they're going to the hospital. Why do you think that is? And how do you think we can help them be more willing and able to access care? Yeah, I think people feel judged plenty, you know, especially women or with certain types of issues where they feel like the doctor doesn't listen or just like is very brusque with their answer. Like, here's what you need to do, like get out of here with that. And often it's probably not the right clinic or the right doctor for them in that situation. I think people, like I said earlier, don't quite get the the value of having that established care. And even me, I have not had a doctor for like 20 years. And I finally got one this year because I know that I'm going to start needing, I don't need anything yet, but like it's coming where I need to start doing some proactive stuff. And it's easier if you have someone who knows you or knows your history. And if you need something urgently and you're trying to get into a doctor, if you don't have one, that makes it a lot harder too. So I think, I think that there's a misunderstanding about what the value, a lot of people are like, I feel well, why do I need to go to the doctor? What's the point? But then when later down the line, when they need something, then it's too late to have had that relationship already or trying to find a doctor, you know, with six month waiting list or something like that can also be difficult. But yeah, I mean, I think, uh, and, and that's a lot on doctors too, where some are just don't, don't explain or have their own preconceived notions or ideas and unfortunately transmit that to the patient or um, then they feel something negative about the experience. Mm-hmm. I hear this a lot actually as a therapist, but like they avoid going to the doctor because they don't want to know if something's wrong because it's like, if you know it's wrong, it's real, but you only get sick if you know it's wrong and seek. Do you know what I mean? Have you ever heard this? Like, I don't want to know that I have cancer because once I know I have cancer, I'll end up being sick. If I don't know it, it's just like, won't be a real thing. I'm seeing a lot with COVID right now. Whereas like, if I just think it's a cold, I'm okay. And if I know it's COVID, then I like have to do more things or carry more, care more about it. So just don't tell me, I'd rather not know. And I can imagine that that extends towards everything. I, I, you know, it's not my patient population, but I've definitely heard the same about, especially like cancer type diagnoses that then they're like, then it means bad stuff. And I, and they live in denial. I don't think their symptoms are probably more prominent once they're recognized. They're just now more highlighted or brought to the forefront, but um, yeah, it's scary. 
Yeah. yeah. How do you handle that if somebody comes in and says, I don't want to know what the test results are? Like, what do you do with that? That's a difficult situation that we're navigating right now. Mostly it's not that they don't want to know the test results. They just don't want the test at all, which is a newer thing since COVID with people saying like, I don't want to test for that. Whereas before, if I'm like, I think we should have a flu test. Most people are like, sure. But I think that that, like, whatever you say, you're the doctor, I trust you. But there's been a lot of mistrust in the medical community right now, right? With all of COVID happening and a lot of mm-hmm. uh, discourse and dis- disconnect amongst people and the CDC and the doctors and all of it. It's, it's creating a challenging road for for us, which is probably leading to some burnout on nurses and doctors just um, getting frustrated with dealing with it. Yeah. 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 There's, and I feel like this was going on before even COVID because I remember when I got pregnant and watching the documentaries out there about how OB-GYN industry, and I love my ob that's another one that I've had for a long time that I like, she knows me, she makes time for me. Yeah. It's a very rare thing, you and, and her. But anyways, there were all these documentaries about like all the things doctors do they aren't supposed to do when it's better to go to a midwife and have a home birth and they scare mm-hmm. you and they charge you all these fees. And like, I feel like there's tons of documentaries out there about like misinformation, like cancer treatments, a bunch of BS. You should go to Mexico and there's like a place in Mexico where they like do oh, organic yeah. juicing and like some yeah. coffee thing, yeah. you know, but it's, it's confusing and it's scary. Yeah. I think as somebody yeah. not in are terrible at PR. Like we need much better PR because I think there's so much money in documentaries and just lobbyists, but I feel like the doctors just sit here and do the work and just they're like, oh, okay, well, people will figure it out that that's silly or whatever. And it's just, but there's no like counterattack on it. And so people just run with that, you yeah. know, and no one's yeah. saying contrary. So they're like, well, maybe it is true. No one's over here denying it. Yeah. And the doctors are just like, yeah, it'll go, go away, but it's just not happening. Yeah. And a lot of times they have doctors on the show. So it like seems like somebody who's credentialed. But as I know, as a therapist, there are therapists out there that maybe should not be therapists. Right. Yes. Same for doctors. You know. There's people who should not be doctors. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that has been going on for a long time. So I can't imagine how hard it is now to deal with all the, I mean, it's like the mistrust has been yeah. put on high, steroids. Highlighting it. Yes, for sure. So in order for a doctor to provide the best level of care, it's important for the patient to be honest about their symptoms and habits, as well as knowledgeable about their family medical history or lack of it. What have you found to be the most helpful in making your patients active and informed participants in their care? So this is probably a little bit easier for my subspecialty than others because parents are very involved in their children's care, especially at the beginning. Whereas, you know, you come in as a new mom and I ask you, are they peeing, pooping? And you have it written down like a time, a log, like it was at 404 and then it was, you know, so it's parents are great historians. Um, and as children turn into patients and in, in age, then we're not as good at historians and are less involved. So it's a little bit easier, I think, for me than for like a family physician or internal medicine who has to deal with the adult. Um, but I, again, I think it's just having a dialogue and a back and forth and, and saying, so I don't have as much value in the history because I usually am seeing the kids and have seen the history as it evolves and, or I just have healthier patient population. This just doesn't have as much of a history. So history is probably the lesser important in my field, but it can be very important. Well, the history of like a, just the illness, I guess itself is still important. But again, the parents are on top of all the symptoms, you know, she had fever this day and, and so on and so forth. But I think that just having, being able to have the dialogue in it and understand why it matters. And then again, being able to say, I'm unable to comply with that, be it for financial reasons, some medicine's expensive and people will get a prescription from the doctor and go to the pharmacy and then not fill it because they're like, that was $200 and I can't afford it. And I am, because we have five people in my office, when people call back and say, Hey, that prescription was expensive. Then I hear that. And then the next time I'm like, Oh, Hey, this may be expensive. If it is, I don't know. Cause we have no idea. I have no idea how much the prescription is going to cost for anybody. And plans are different. It can be $10 for one person and 150 for another. Mm-hmm. And I just, I have no way of knowing. And so I'll just tell him like, call me back. I'll switch it. Like there's options here. Or sometimes I'll be like, this is really the only option like it sucks. Sorry. You know, but at least yeah. if you know that or in it, and then if someone can tell me that they're not able to do that, we'll have to keep looking for what they can or for coupons or things like that. But same, if someone can't afford their imaging or their 
medication that's being prescribed or any of that, and they don't say anything, then you don't give the doctor a chance to say, is it really needed? Or is there another option? Or is there a cheaper option? Or Mm -hmm. there's lots of services out there to help with all of that, that there's a problem. Yeah. I wonder how much shame plays into being able to look at options, you know, financial shame. Yeah. Right. Cause I see that too. And I'll go and I can find pretty quickly, actually, you know, not for profits or like doctors that work at like special clinics and they'll do a couple hours and, and free services across the board. But it seems like, you know, people are so afraid. Right. Yeah. but for lots of reasons, may, they don't understand the resources that might be available or the different options that might be available. They may not feel like they have the time or the space to say that to the doctor. You know, if the doctor's hands on the door and they're like, you only have five minutes for your appointment or or whatever. There's probably a multitude of reasons for each person's re- reason for not saying anything, but definitely contributes because then they just don't, then they just either they show up in the ER later Mm -hmm. Um, which is contributing to ER wait times and the ER is not a good place for like chronic type care, you know? So a lot of times the ER physicians are frustrated with the patients coming in. They can't really manage it well. No, there's no one to follow it up. So things get lost or repeated, which leads to extra cost, you know, across the society for medical care. And yeah, just gotta be open and honest and try. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what you were saying about doctors PR, I feel like there needs to be better access to information. I wonder if you, I feel like if you had somebody say like, if you don't get treated and then you go to ER and have to have all those tests run there, this is what your out-of-pocket cost ends up being versus yeah. if you did some preventative care and went in for one checkup yeah. and caught right. it ahead of time, right? Yeah. Like there needs to be that yeah. information. But the the a lot of the policies that have been developed still aren't fixing like that bottom line issue. So you may be able to log in and get your notes or your office visit stuff and take it with you. But that's it as far as the um, transparency of the like what's been done. So there's not really still a way for I think electronic systems were created to to facilitate the sharing. But like I have one system, Texas Children's has another mm-hmm. system, Oral Herman has another system, even though I'm linked and affiliated with them, they still operate in a different system in the hospital. And they don't communicate very well. And so yeah. I cannot easily find sometimes when someone's had labs anywhere else. And that's a real problem still. And you think it should be like instant, right? Like mm-hmm. Google or something. So I feel like there's, I don't know, lack of transparency there still for sure. I think doctors are frustrated with it because it's hard to get some of those records. Yeah. And, you know, and especially for patients that have gone to multiple different doctors for whatever reason, different specialists or moved or anything like that. They're like, I think I had that done, but then they can't ever find it. And you don't want to repeat stuff if you don't need to and redo the work. And you'd like to be able to review those notes, but it's hard to get them. Yeah. 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 And I do, I think that, I mean, gosh, what you're saying is so right on because there's also a depersonalization that happens with electronics, like with yeah. scheduling online, with reviewing things online and not having a person to talk to. Not that it, I mean, I know it makes people's lives easier, but that depersonalization yes. kind of yeah. takes away from the relationship too, the ability to have that vulnerability of like, okay, here's your lab results. Let's talk about what that means. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then, um, and then a lot of people are trying to kind of manage things themselves. And unfortunately you can't trust everything you read on the internet about medical yes. too. Or it's yes. really scary because if you type in, I know that when I was in medical school and we're learning about cancer or these different syndromes that are like <clears throat> autoimmune type syndromes can be, you know, significant impacts to your life. The first symptom for everyone is fatigue. And so if you just Google fatigue, you're going to be like, oh my God, I have leukemia or, you know, mm-hmm. arthritis or something. But that's not like the primary symptom or the most important symptom of the whole syndrome. But if you just look at that, you could think, you know, self-diagnose yourself with a lot of things. So you have to be, that's why my training comes in that I know like, well, that's like a minimal symptom. Here's the major one. You don't have that, you know, and that's what's mm-hmm. helpful about seeing the doctor versus yeah. reading it online. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like you offer something else that I think is so important that I wish more doctors did was this non-judgmental clarification. Because I feel like I came in one time or I called one time and I was like, Aubrey's really lethargic, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Because I, yeah, I remember you you were like, well, lethargic means this. Yeah. Yeah. Do you mean fatigue? Can you describe it a little more? Like there's a misunderstanding of what the medical yeah. terminology means. Yeah. But it wasn't like, you're so stupid. You didn't know what lethargic meant. It was like, 
you know, okay, this is what lethargic means. Is that what you're seeing? Can you give yeah. me some more information? And yeah. I found, I find that so helpful in being able to come with to you with information. Yeah. And just make sure we're on the same page and understand that I'm not thinking one thing while you're thinking another. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's helpful. Yeah. And I feel like it also makes me feel listened to like patients feel heard when you can respond back to them. Okay. Tell me more yeah. what you mean by that. And, right. and that you take the time to do that. Yeah. And then uh, we manage you, right? So it's a win-win. You feel heard. And then I feel like either she is and she needs like extra workup, or then I understand like, okay, she's not that bad. Here's where we're at. And then I can manage that too. So we both benefit from that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. The collaboration is so yeah. important. What in your experience has made the biggest difference in your relationships? And, I, and we've kind of covered lots of different yeah. things yeah. about this, but if you had to summarize your experience in building these relationships with these families that you see, what do you think makes the biggest difference in how you relate to them? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's the, it's kind of the whole, whole of it. It's the accessibility, it's the continuity over time. And I think that's been the biggest blessing for me. It's so much easier for me to, to treat Aubrey or Megan having seen them for years, because I know like when you come in, are you like really worried? This is like, you're way more worried than you normally are, or you're not worried at all. Or Mm -hmm. we've like visited the same topics over and over. So we have a background for it. Then like redoing the wheel every single time you come in, you know, with something it's like, if I see a a new mom for the very first time with a baby, it's often a much longer visit than third time with a baby. And of course, the third time you have a baby, you're more comfortable with it, Mm -hmm. but they just already know kind of how I am. I know how they are. I know, Mm -hmm. you know, all of it. And that just, it makes it a lot easier on my schedule and Mm -hmm. my own like work-life balance and, and kind of managing all of that too, to have that history. So, but then, yeah, and just being able to call or email or text or any of the avenues of, you know, communication sometimes and and knowing that you're going to get an answer and, and that, that you can get an appointment and have the time that you need to. Yeah. And all in whole. When Megan was born, I remember this, when Megan was born, I had like really bad postpartum anxiety because Aubrey's such a wild child. (laughs) Um, And I remember just, I had like mass anxiety and I came in and I was just like totally open with you about, I was like, I have mass postpartum anxiety right now. And I remember you like, it was just really comforting. You're like, well, of course you do. Like, this is a completely different dynamic. Like it was, and I talked to people about this for a living. And that was like, yeah, the best thing you could have said. I just felt, I left, I always leave your office feeling like I'm prepared. I'm not a crazy person. (laughs) I'm not a crazy, horrible mom. Like I feel normal. I feel like this is part of what's happening. This is a normal process. and, And I feel like you provide this comfort in that. Yeah, really that's that. uh, my goal. So I'm glad to hear that I'm getting that. Yeah, uh, across. but definitely that's the job of a pediatrician for sure is reassuring a mom and it just helps to have that connection. Yeah. But I even think like anybody, like if you go and you have cancer or you go and you have some major stomach issues and you can leave feeling like confident in your treatment or confident that your doctor has a plan yeah. or that they understand you like that. Yeah. I feel like it's so huge and it gets missed yeah. so often. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Even if you don't know the answer, knowing that what you're working on ruling out or working on ruling in or what you're looking for, like, I think knowledge is definitely powerful in those scenarios. And just having Mm -hmm. an idea of like what the plan is even, or what's the next steps, all of that part can be empowering and helpful and reassuring. Yeah. And not treating your patients like they're stupid. Cause I feel like that (laughs) happens sometimes too. And that's, that makes it really hard for patients to come back and and say that's that collaboration piece. They can't give you information if you make them feel stupid because right, they're yeah. afraid. Yeah, because then they're like, well, I'm not going to correct them. And and you learn lessons. I am in medical school, was watching a surgery and I felt like the surgeon left a towel inside the patient. And I was like, oh, I feel like they didn't get that one towel out. Should I say something? Should mm-hmm. I not say something? And I didn't say anything because they're the surgeon and I'm a medical student and they're mean and they're going to yell at me. And then of course, at the end, they count all the towels and they realized one was missing and they had to go back in and look for it. And then I regretted not speaking up because it just made everything take way longer. So, I mean, there's lessons in that for the patient too, if you don't say anything and then it gets missed, but, but if you feel like you can't, then it's just not a very effective relationship and there are going to be things that are missed. Yeah. I listen to this podcast. So clearly I'm a podcast lover. So I listen to this podcast through Ted talk with 
the host is Adam Grant. He's an industrial organizational psychologist, but I was listening to one today and it was about being able to speak up in office set in work settings. It was talking about Boeing. I don't know if you remember this, where the, the Boeing planes were crashing. Yeah. There were those big crashes, like one after the yeah. other and Boeing got yeah. in big trouble because yeah. of that thing we were talking about earlier, that profit bottom line thing. Stuff wasn't coming in, but the production still needed to stay. And so yeah. they had to use like crappy materials, which is yeah. what led to all these problems. Yeah. But this thing about being able to speak up and be collaborative, you know, I think there's a big push right now and a movement to make environments, business environments, at least more collaborative. And I think when we were talking even about medical school and how, you know, like Dr. Siegel had that old school approach of this is facts and doctor and and you don't have a relationship versus kind of what you experience, which is more like learning to relate to people, right. care about, yeah. you know, more than just the symptoms. And I think that push is happening in business. But what you were describing, that that inability to speak up and not feeling like you had permission to say there was a towel left behind, that's something that they pointed out in this episode I was listening to as like a toxic culture that leads to more yeah. mistakes, actually. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because I mean, that patient, I, they didn't get the towel left behind permanently, but they were closed up and then had to be reopened. And that prolongs the anesthesia time and probably scarring and and just manipulation of all of that. Um, but I think that that probably happens in, in smaller instances every, all day long where a doctor yeah. misses some, but some important detail and misunderstands what's happening and may even go down an alternate path than they would have had someone was like, no, no, I think, no, I said this instead of that or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of people are intimidated by the doctor and just don't, don't correct them. And they're like, fine or whatever. And, or maybe a couple of times later when it's gone completely off the rails, they finally speak up more. And then it's like all this time's been wasted or, you know, delay in their care or treatment. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm curious, you know, and this is a big assumption on my part, but I assume that if you did say something or wrote something down wrong and Katie or Lolly or somebody saw it, that they would feel comfortable just from what I read. And so I'm curious if you set that up there where like they get to, they can correct you. Like I wonder about oh, yeah. nurses feeling like they can say things. They do. Yes. They're like, <laughs> are, you sure? are you sure about that? They, yeah. they definitely. And I think that, that for them, that comes from, you know, us working together for so long and they're like, you always say this and you said this this time. And either then I explain it if I really meant it. Or I'm like, oh yeah, whoops, for sure. That's awesome. I love yeah. that. I bet they love that too. Cause I feel like that's another rare thing. I feel like there's a hierarchy, like, yeah. like the old school thinking versus the more progressive collaborative thinking. The old school thinking is like, there's a hierarchy. It's almost military. Like you yeah. don't speak up right. to the person who has the more experience or is the more right. superior. Yeah. But then if you're like the nurse in that situation and you know, something's not right, and you can't say anything, then it's frustrating to you. And then that leads to unhappiness and turnover and all of that affects the whole, you know, clinic and as well too, or the whole job. Yeah. Yeah. So did you watch or did you listen to Dr. Death? Have you heard about? I haven't, I have not, a lot of my friends have, and I have interest in listening to it, but I haven't gotten around to it yet. But I think a, a lot of my friends, and of course, I have a skewed friend group of all doctors from just mm-hmm. being in medical school and residency and all of that. Yeah. Um, and it was when it first came out, I remember being all on Facebook of like, how did this happen? How have we let people like this remain in practice? And yeah, it seems like people complain about little small things that doctors do all the time. And then this doctor was making egregious errors and nobody mm-hmm. said anything and spoke mm-hmm. up and it just continued to happen. So um, yeah, shocking, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and there was even a nurse that was interviewed. So they made a show out of it too. Okay. I don't remember who made it, but it's um, Joshua Jackson. Jackson plays that doctor. All right. Name I can't remember, but right. He was the, he's the first and only doctor to like go to jail for something that happened in the surgery in the OR. I think. Yeah. That sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so one nurse did say something and speak up, but it's like the hospitals don't really communicate and they try to protect themselves. Oh, and yeah. So I think this goes back to my earlier question about that distrust. How do patients trust hospital systems? How do patients trust medical industry? I mean, it's hard because, you know, um, doctors and government and research groups have messed up over time. And so I, I understand that kind of level of distrust or like historically that there's been, been things that people have done that maybe weren't appropriate or right or any of that. 
I, I probably have an inherent trust of medicine, just being in medicine or being a doctor that I at least don't feel like anyone's out to purposely do anything wrong. And so I think if people could at least come from, even if it's a neutral standpoint, like they're not without fault, but they're not like, you know, malignant. They're not trying to hurt you. Mm-hmm. Most of the time. <laughs> right. As a right. whole, you know, it's yeah. like the government or the, you know, like a lot of the conspiracy stuff, like there's the hospitals have no, they have nothing to gain by hurting you. They have something to gain by hushing doctors who are altered or messed up or something like that for sure. But usually those are like limited instances mm-hmm. and not like a whole widespread, like systemic issue where people should just not trust any hospital or any doctor ever again. And if we did a better job of policing and being more transparent, then people might be more reassured. There's probably some ways that the system needs to be amended going Mm -hmm. forward for sure. Yeah. And I think there's a movement. I mean, I think that's part of what that boutique, the boutique doctors are, is that that movement to make it possible to have more time. Because I think one of my doctor friends laid out like the expenses of medical school and Mm -hmm you know, paying things off and opening a practice and the expenses there. And like, they'll give you all these huge loans, but you still have to pay back yeah. a loan, even if you're a doctor. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of pressure. Yeah. I mean, and I, I remember being in medical school or residency and there's just people who are like, this is not like, they don't get it. They're really struggling or they're just like, not a good person. Like they need to not be around patients. Like they, you know, but I think even in like kindergarten and first grade where kids aren't really meeting the standards, but society like pushes them ahead and they just get passed along because that's what's expected kind of happens in medical school too. So of course mm-hmm. there's bad apples and medical school and residency. And I think even there, it needs to start doing a better job of being like, this is not right for you. Like you're not right for this field. Like this is just not going to work out, but it's hard because yeah, you might be already 30 or $50,000 into debt by that point. And so you don't want to quit. Mm-hmm. How are you going to pay that back? You don't have anything to show for it. And you have mm-hmm. all this money that you owe and being the person to end that career for that person, you know, in that situation is also a lot. So I think there's so many roadblocks to saying or speaking up in that situation too, Yeah, but it would be beneficial to society as a whole yeah. to do so. It's yeah. hard. It is it's hard really to do hard. The yeah. Yeah. Very hard. Okay. So what is one thing that all doctors want their patients to know? And what's one thing that we can do to make doctor and medical professionals jobs easier? So uh, I actually think the, the, the summary would be to stay off of Google, don't Google, but there's, you know, some subsets of that one is that the reviews on Google are terrible because almost the only people who are writing them are mad ones complaining. Yeah. We're not allowed to say anything back to them because of HIPAA violations. So if someone comments on a review on me and is like, blah, 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 this happened, this was terrible. I can't go back and be like, that's not what happened. Here's my Mm -hmm. side because I can't even acknowledge that they're my patient. Right. So I have, I have nothing, I can't say nothing. And I'm like, that might be the one mad person in a year, but they, that's the review someone's yeah. using to choose if I'm going to be their doctor or not. And mm-hmm. mostly happy people don't leave reviews unless they're asked, which some doctors do, or especially like corporate clinics will like call you or send surveys or something after. So I understand it's hard as a patient because you have no way of knowing, like you're just Googling a doctor. Like I'm going to see an ENT, who am I going to see? So mm-hmm trying them out and having to go there and just see if they connect with you or getting like word of mouth referrals is probably better. Mm-hmm. Google, Google is, can be a little misleading. Um, especially like Yelp and stuff like it's terrible. Yeah. It's terrible. And then same, same vein of stay off Google or tell me what you're Googling. But I definitely have a lot of people who are like, well, I read it on Google and I'm like, yeah, but mm-hmm not really right. It's not really true. Or people can write whatever they want, or like they read it on a different blog, or it's not really a medical background of someone writing it, who's guiding them on things that they're doing for their children. And so be careful what you read on the internet. Yes. Or expose yourself to, right. There's the Googling thing. So do you find that people will like have decided what they have and they'll come to you and they'll leave out symptoms and they'll only talk about the symptoms that lead you to that diagnosis? Uh, I don't know. I think a lot of parents like are worried enough that they want to tell me everything, but I do Mm -hmm. feel that over time they kind of learn, like, if I see these words, I get this thing. And if they really want that, they kind of try to, you know, push me in into that direction. So maybe probably more so for uh, adult doctors Mm -hmm. where you can more, you know, most of my stuff is illness related. So it's kind of hard to, I guess, kind of steer that, you know, so Mm -hmm. much. 
But definitely if you, you could tell your story and leave out a couple symptoms and make it seem like one thing or tell it the other way and make it seem like another very easily. And the more people go to doctors, I think the more they kind of don't really learn it. That's not fair. I mean, to say it exactly that way, but kind of figure out the, the game of the system a little bit. Yeah. To get, to get what they want, but that in, yeah. in the long run, they're the ones suffering because they're not getting like a true, they are their true problem address what they need. Yeah. And sometimes what people think they need and what they actually need are very different. And mm-hmm. my job is to make them comfortable with what, what I think they need and make them feel reassured that they're not missing out by not getting something. Mm-hmm. But you know, one of the, the oaths of being a doctor is to do no harm and things have harm. If a parent has a child that hit their head and they, they're just like, I just want a CT scan to tell me it's fine. I'm like, well, it increases your risk of brain cancer in the long term, especially the more and more you do. So you may think, I just want to know, I want the CT scan, but if it's really not going to show anything, it's really my job to be like, but we don't need it because I don't want to re- increase your risk of brain cancer long-term. Right. Um, but that's where, yeah, I mean, if someone knows that if they say these certain words, they'll probably get what they want, then they're in the long run doing themselves a disservice or their child. Yeah. 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 And then that makes me think about, because this comes up a lot is the antibiotics because everybody wants, I think as a society, we want an answer. We want like a black and white, like what's the treatment? What's the, I want control over this. And there's a lot of stuff because I've never had that when I've come in with you with my kids and you're like, well, there's nothing like the antibiotics aren't really going to do anything here. You know, right. we just have to let like, it run its course. And I'm like, no. I don't yeah. do and I don't like saying it as much as you don't <laughs> want to hear it because it's so much nicer to say like, oh, it's strep. We have an antibiotic for that and we treat it. Everybody's happy. We have a diagnosis and an answer and a reason and a treatment and all of that. The worst thing is to come in and be like, oh, it's a virus. Sorry. It's going to take five days or 10 days or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. People come in, they just want it to be better. They don't, you know, they're going to Disney and they want to be better by then, like, or mm-hmm. whatever the thing. And oftentimes I'm like, it's probably not going to hurt them much, if any, to give them, you know, what they want. But I have to also look at it as like, in general, people are developing antibiotic resistance. And so me prescribing it when it's not really appropriate is contributing to that. Mm-hmm. Or I've had some kids recently with some antibiotic side effects. And I, of course, know those. And I think those parents, if you ask them, are like, wow, I didn't really understand that this could really happen. Like, you know, it's a a theoretical risk, but like seeing it happen, you're like, oh, that's why you don't want to give me medicine. Then then it hits no more. But, you know, I have the benefit of knowing that. That's why I try to talk people out of it if I don't think they need it. Yeah, I'd say you're really good about that. You're pretty transparent. You I remember the first time you did it, you're like, okay. There's no signs of any infection. It's a virus. It's more than likely a virus. And we just have to let it run its course. And I know that's the worst thing. And I wish I had something clear. And like, it felt like you just like knew what I was feeling already. So I left, you know, when people in my life were like, well, why didn't you get an antibiotic? They're so sick. And I'm like, well, the doctor didn't need an antibiotic. And I trust my doctor. Yeah. Right. Because it comes down to that. It does. It comes down to you trusting me. And then of course, over time that gets way easier, right? Because if, you know, Aubrey's seven now, right. And almost, yeah. that like, I was, you know, I was right. She got better and she didn't need medicine. And then there's times where I do give her medicine when I think she needs it. But mm-hmm. I think then it's, it's, a, it's not such a big conversation anymore. Right. Like you come in, I'm like, yes or no, she needs it or not. And you're like, whatever you say, it's fine. Cause yeah. you know, I trust you, but it, it doesn't happen on day one. It happens, you know, over time for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. How do you respond when somebody gets angry with you that you won't get an antibiotic or that you won't give them their CT scan? Or what do you say usually when somebody's like, well, I'm going to get a second opinion? Like, how do you deal with that? Yeah, I mean, I I do my best to try to explain why, but I certainly have had people leave and, and be upset because I didn't give them the medicine and go get it from another doctor or urgent care or something or um, and then leave reviews or not come back and all of that. And it's really upsetting to me. And I have to remind myself that I'm, I'm not the doctor for everybody, you know, mm. and I'm not the personality match for everybody and that I just can do my best. And I, I don't certainly love the confrontation part of it. If they're really aggressive about wanting something, that's not my favorite part of this job for sure. Sometimes I try to like split the difference of like, well, why don't you call me back in a couple of days if it's not getting better? Like, you know, not like a in 10 days, but you know, more of a let's follow up tomorrow or try to offer like something that's not giving them what I don't think they need. And, you know, not just giving into them, but not mm-hmm. just saying, well, sorry, that's all we're doing. Like, how about we try this? Like, you know, mm-hmm. kind of a compromise approach just to make it 
less aggressive. But I do think that over the years, we've cultivated a practice of people who trust us and respect us and our opinion. And so we don't run into that a whole lot anymore, which mm-hmm. then makes everybody happy, Yeah, <laughs> um, which you then sense because we're not frustrated with, you know, our experiences or the dialogue that we're having or whatever. And that all trickles down. Cause if you leave one room and you've had to, you know, have this fight with a parent over what you think is right for their kid to go into the next room of a newborn and put on your smiley face or whatever, it's hard. Yeah. Um, and you, you do it. And there has to be a little bit of a disconnect there for the doctors too. Like, as much as you want to value the relationship you have, you have to be able to separate it out because you can go from one room of something really sad to a newborn and you have to then be able to address the newborn correctly too. So yeah, it's hard to, to have relationships, but also compartmentalize, but it makes it easier in general if you have the relationship that you do with parents that you don't have to be put in that situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the kids too. You're great with the kids. Aubrey calls you, still calls you Snow White. You're like her, her prince. They get excited to come see you. I know. I don't remember wanting to go to the doctor, but they, even if there's shots, they get excited to come to the doctor. I don't think we probably did it when you started coming here, but we have an application process now when we have new patients and it just really, it's, it's to make them aware of our policies. Like we don't prescribe antibiotics over the phone. So don't call thinking you're going to get it or you know, we encourage vaccinations or whatever, just so that that they're not coming here if we're not going to be a good fit for them. And that's probably helpful. That would be probably helpful for a lot of doctors to be like, here's what you're going to get or not going to get from my office, take it or leave it. But at least then you know if it's going to be a good fit for you. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Well, thank you so much again for coming on. I really do appreciate your insight and I hope I'm sure it will be helpful to both patients and doctors as they move through their own journeys. All right. Well, thank you for this opportunity. Bye. Bye. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help us reach more listeners, please share it with someone you know, post about it on social media, and leave a rating or review. To see what's coming next, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Nick Finn Council, or visit our website at finnegancounseling.org. Before I go, I'd also like to thank the people who made this project possible. Our wonderful experts who joined me for each episode, our production team at Three Wire Creative, our editor and production assistant, Giselle Dixon, and the amazing leadership team and supporters at Nick Finnegan Counseling Center in Houston, Texas. Until next time.